Hello, thank you for tuning in to our Empire Lecture Series podcast. We hope this podcast finds you well, whether you're driving to work, between cases, or adding some education to your workout. Remember that all of these lectures are also available on our website and YouTube channel. And if you like what you hear, please rate us five stars and subscribe. Happy listening. Our next speaker is Dr. Michael Whalen from uh, George Washington University. He's going to be uh, talking about prostate cancer, chemo prevention, and complementary and alternative medicine. Uh, Mike is a graduate of Columbia Urology Residency Program, class of 2014. Um, he uh, went on to do a fellowship in minimally invasive surgery at Mount Sinai, and then an, another fellowship at Yale in Ural Oncology. Within our program at Columbia, Mike has the esteemed title as being the last chief resident from our program to actually win the chief debate at the New York section. This is, was in 2014, so you can tell that our program has had a losing streak since you've graduated, Mike. Um, we're so glad to have you back, um, and thanks for coming back to the New York section to lecture us today. We look forward to hearing from you. So you can go ahead and get started. Great. Thanks, uh, Dr. Badalato. Uh, I appreciate the invitation also from Dr. Cooper and Dr. Small. This is really fantastic that, you're, um, that you've organized all of this, and it's great to see that the Elden New York programs are participating, and hopefully this will be kind of one of the lasting legacies of this whole crisis, you know, the teamwork and coming together aspect of everything. So I know y'all are working very hard up in New York, so I wish you grace and courage as you're continuing to fight the battle up there um, as we deal with this crisis. I will, I will uh, issue a correction there. So I actually lost the New York section debate, but then redeemed myself at the national debate um, at the AUA that year. So. I was sort of, you know, one and one. Um, so the losing streak is longer than I realized. The losing streak is longer than you realize, exactly. Um, okay, so, so getting into things. So we're going to talk about prostate cancer and some preventative strategies. Um, and a lot of this is somewhat beyond the scope of what's routinely discussed. Um, and a lot of the, disc of the information here is born from the idea of, you know, patients asking when you see them, um, who may have family history or who may be concerned, um, what can they do to prevent prostate cancer? And, you know, I often tell them there's no medicine that we can give to prevent this, but there are certain, you know, dietary and sort of holistic strategies in, that we can employ. And certainly this is not meant to replace, you know, normal screening, um, you know, diagnosis and treatment, but as an adjunctive or as we refer to it, complementary approach, um, you know, that can be very beneficial for patients and allow them to sort of be proactive and take charge about ensuring their health and well-being. So moving on for prostate cancer is the most common solid malignancy uh, in men. There's estimated to be 190,000 cases in 2020. Um, it's the second leading cause of cancer death and you see um, in the, the cartoon below. Uh, interestingly, uh, prostate cancer has actually become um, more lethal than colon cancer. You see this is from 2017 where uh, prostate cancer was actually the third most uh, lethal malignancy, and now it's surpassed uh, colorectal cancer. Whether this is due to decreased screening for a time because of the USPSTF recommendations um, in the past is not clear, uh, but it is substantially um, you know, prevalent in, in society and you know, warrants uh, investigation. 
Um, so there are, for the residents, you know, there are several risk factors for prostate cancer, one of which uh, is family history. Having a brother with prostate cancer puts you at a higher risk um, than having a father. You see the relatives risks listed there. African-American race, about one in five or six African-American men will be diagnosed with prostate cancer. Um, obesity has been shown to be associated with higher risk prostate cancer, possibly in the setting of, you know, kind of the hypogonadal state that can be induced uh, by excessive adipose tissue. Um, and although it may not be higher, more prevalent in obese men, certain obese men who may have underlying hypogonadism, if prostate cancer develops, it's thought to be probably more aggressive. Um, advanced age, there's been autopsy studies showing that about 80% of men in their 80s who have died from other causes, uh, like car accidents, strokes, heart attacks, things like that, about 80% of them will have trace amounts of prostate cancer um, on autopsy various environmental factors, and that kind of underlies you know, what we're going to be talking about here, uh, dietary um, impact. Also, tobacco use has been associated with higher risk prostate cancer. Agent Orange exposure is interesting, you know, for those uh, residents that work at the VA, you, know, you will see this, and it actually is a covered event by the government because it is, uh, uh, Agent Orange is a known carcinogen. Um, so they will basically, you know, service uh, workers who have uh, service uh, members who have been exposed, Agent Orange will have all their expenses paid by the government if they develop cancer. Um, so genetic factors are becoming more and more uh, understood in their role in prostate cancer oncogenesis. Um, two main classes of genes that have, that have been shown to be mutated that are important to know are the DNA damage repair genes, uh, those involved in homologous recombination, such as BRC1, BRCA2. Um, you know, these are involved in DNA double-strand break repair um, and are associated with uh, not only breast cancer, as you may imagine, you know, the, the BRCA1 and 2, but also prostate and ovarian cancer. Um, they've been shown to be mutated in anywhere between 2 and 12% of prostate cancer, more advanced prostate cancer, and then certainly metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer tends to have a higher incidence of these mutations, but they can occur in localized prostate cancer as well. Uh, BRCA2 has a higher relative risk. You see about nine on the slide compared to um, two for BRCA1. Uh, there's an ongoing study called IMPACT that we'll look at in a second. Um, and the NCCN uh, 2020 guidelines actually recommend uh, germline testing for uh, patients who are uh, locally advanced in terms of having node positivity or metastatic disease. Uh, DNA mismatch repair genes, um, which you traditionally associate with Lynch syndrome and upper tract urothelial carcinoma, um, have been shown to be uh, mutated in advanced prostate cancer. These are associated with microsatellite instability, and um, there may be a role for immuno-oncology therapy like pembrolizumab and, um, with multiple lines of therapy failing for these metastatic castration-resistant patients. So. Um, I want to bring this up because uh, there's also been uh, investigation into the, the prevalence of these mutations. As I mentioned, up to 12% of uh, DNA damage repair mutations are found in metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer. Localized disease is around 5%. You see um, uh, down here, um, low-risk disease, probably only 2%, and um, up to 6% in high-risk disease as uh, evidenced by the TCGA, the Cancer Genome Atlas Project. Higher Gleason scores also associated. This is just going through, you know, basically some of the breakdown of these mutations, you know, suffice to say that this can happen. Um, so it's now recommended that not only should metastatic 
castration-resistant prostate cancer patients be tested um, for germline mutations, but also a, sm a smattering of localized prostate cancer patients. So any prostate cancer patient before the, who's diagnosed before the age of 50, um, the NCCN 2020 guidelines not only recommend testing for node positive or metastatic patients, but also high-risk patients, very high-risk patients, um, any prostate cancer patient with a first-degree relative that had prostate cancer less than 60 years old, um, any prostate cancer patient who has a first-degree relative with a known cancer susceptibility mutation, um, and any prostate cancer patient who has uh, three or more family members on the same side of the family who have cancer, um, you know, of various types. Um, there's also been some reports to, to suggest that men who have a less favorable genomic uh, prostate score, like on Oncotype DX, should be considered for genetic testing as well. That's not as widespread, but you know it is kind of food for thought. Um, for people who have uh, BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutations, this is currently being looked at in a prospective way uh, in Europe with something called the IMPACT trial, identification of men with a genetic predisposition to prostate cancer, targeted screening in men at higher genetic risk um, yep. and controls. So, um, the idea is that um, BRCA1 and BRCA2 carriers have been shown potentially to have a higher incidence of prostate cancer in a more aggressive disease. Uh, although there is longer follow-up needed in that trial, which is you know, currently accruing, uh, preliminary evidence suggests that although the incidence between you know, non-BRCA patients and those who have the genetic mutation is about the same, the BRCA1 and 2 mutation carriers actually had more aggressive disease. So they were more likely to be um, intermediate uh, or high risk. So, you know, where do, we, where do we go from here? What do we do with this information, right? We know these, these predisposing factors, um, you know, um, the family history, you know, African-American race. What do we do with this information? Well, obviously, you know, we initiate screening. Um, you know, it's recommended by the AUA, you know, for review for the residents, you know, screening should be undertaken um, for men at normal risk, uh, meaning, who are not of African-American ancestry uh, and have no family history from age 55 uh, to 69. Um, we don't do screening for anyone with less than 10 years life expectancy. You can use various social security life expectancy calculators or the Memorial Sloan Kettering um, uh, risk calculator for life expectancy. Um, screening interval should be every two years or so, men of average risk. And earlier screening is recommended for those at higher risk, so those with family history, African-Americans and those with an inherited susceptibility mutation recommended to start screening between the age of 40 and 45, depending on you know, whether you follow the, the AUA or the American Cancer Society. Um, but you know, these, these efforts are aimed at detection, right? We're detecting the disease. Um, is there anything we can do to prevent them? You know, so I see a fair number of patients who are DNA damage repair mutation carriers. We have a multidisciplinary genetics clinic um, down at GW, and you know we're often seeing these patients, and you know we screen them, but they want to know, you know, is there anything that we can do to be proactive? Like, is this a ticking time bomb? Is there something that they can institute that will help them and will reduce their risk, or is it just an inevitability? And you know, I think um, you know the impact trial is going to look into that a little bit. Um, so this gets into the realm of preventative measures. What can we do, right? 
Um, I mentioned before that there are no medications that we can give to prevent prostate cancer. This has actually been looked at you know, previously, uh, so we'll get into that, and then I'll talk about um, some of this, the work that's been done with traditional Chinese medicine um, and also incorporation of uh, Mediterranean diet. And again, some of the evidence is a little bit equivocal and, and not definitive, but at the same time, it allows patients to be proactive um, and can be instituted at various levels, meaning um, you know, for, for just general prevention for the general population, you know, for dietary changes and a holistic approach to um, prostate cancer prevention. For men who have maybe had a biopsy and been diagnosed with high-grade PIN or ASAP, you know, atypical small lacinar proliferation um, as a way of um, prevention. Men on active surveillance for low-grade uh, prostate cancer in Gleason 6, for example, or even favorable um, intermediate risk, um, you know, low volume Gleason 7. Um, so there's various arenas where you can employ these techniques um, and again helps patients to feel sort of more in control. Um, one of the reasons for progression uh, to treatment on active surveillance is this, this uh, notion what we term patient anxiety, right? So I think allowing them to be a little more in control um, can help to alleviate some of that anxiety and reduces um, risk of progression to treatment because of that uh, factor. So um, in terms of chemoprophylaxis, that is using medication to prevent prostate cancer um, development, there's been two kind of seminal studies that have been done. Um, you know, for the residents, this is more of historic interest, um, and these focus on using the 5-alpha reductase inhibitors, finasteride uh, and or dutasteride as a way of uh, preventing prostate cancer because of the way that they work to um, reduce uh, dihydrotestosterone levels, uh, which is you know, much more potent, probably about seven to 10 times uh, more potent for the androgen receptor binding affinity. So um, these have been looked at in the past for their role in reducing prostate cancer incidence. So to talk about the prostate cancer prevention trial, uh, this came out in 2003. Um, there was 18,000 men uh, who were basically randomized to uh, two groups. So it was a um, placebo-controlled, um, you know, double-blind randomized trial. Um, group one got finasteride, group two got placebo. They were followed for seven years and then had a biopsy. It was found that overall about 15% of, of um, placebo group developed prostate cancer. Uh, one interesting finding from the study was how PSA relates to prostate cancer. So, you know, for the residents, you may have read about various uh, PSA ranges being associated with statistical risk of, of prostate cancer. Um, and it's true that, you know, you can tell patients, you know, PSA is not a binary test. It's not either positive or negative. It just puts you on a risk spectrum of how likely we are to find cancer. And as you see on the slide, um, even men with PSA less than two, 10% uh, of them um, uh, uh, develop prostate cancer, even with, with a PSA less than two. So the majority don't have it, but it is possible. So this is where these ranges came from, you know, the prostate cancer prevention trial and sort of of uh, interest is the fact that these uh, ranges have been employed um, in risk calculators to determine a man's risk of prostate cancer. It's been retooled to incorporate free PSA along with race, age, um, family history, digital exam, and whether they've had a prior biopsy. Um, these prediction tools are more of historical interest um, simply because we have better tools now, serum-based uh, biomarkers for prediction of prostate cancer risk. Y'all have made a, 
might have heard about the phi score um, or the 4K score without getting them into them too much. You know, these have kind of supplanted just those risk calculators because they give a sense not only of the prediction of prostate cancer, but of high-grade prostate cancer, which is what we're more concerned about these days. And um, as a shout out to uh, Dr. McKiernan, um, uh, you know, the other biomarkers that are currently employed are urine-based biomarkers such as the XODX to look at someone's risk of prostate cancer. So um, my reason for getting into this was just because of the initial prostate cancer prevention trial. This is where those ranges of likelihood of having prostate cancer based on PSA came from, which have been now replaced with some of these more sensitive um, biomarkers to, to look for high-grade disease. So uh, back to the prostate cancer prevention trial. Um, so it was seen that finasteride actually decreased the incidence of low-grade prostate cancer by about 40%. However, it was reported initially that it increased the incidence of high-grade prostate cancer by about 27%. And we didn't have a mechanistic explanation for why that might be. Um, but if you see in the cartoon down on the right, we thought that that was uh, due to sampling um, bias where before the finasteride, if patients already had a high-grade cancer, it was more likely to sort of miss the cancer uh, based on your traditional extended sextant biopsy scheme. But after finasteride, when the prostate shrinks by about 30%, just a random biopsy was probably more likely to find the cancer by virtue of the fact that the prostate was now smaller. Um, the updated series uh, published by Ian Thompson's group in 2013 um, decreased that a little bit, but still substantiated that there was an increased risk of high-grade prostate cancer after in the finasteride-treated group by about 17%. Um, they did fortunately also report that the mortality uh, overall was no difference between the finasteride group and the um, placebo group. Uh, another trial that looked at this was a randomized trial called a REDUCE, uh, which looked at dutasteride for men who had had a negative biopsy. This came out in 2010 by Dr. Andrew's group. Um, again, placebo controlled, double blind, dutasteride versus placebo, followed for four years. And patients were biopsied at years two and four. And they found similarly that dutasteride reduced the incidence of prostate cancer by 23%, also reduced the incidence of high grade PIN and ASAP. Um, however, there was an increased incidence at um, biopsies done near four of uh, Gleason 8 uh, to 10 prostate cancer. Again, possibly because of the, the sampling um, bias with the smaller prostate. So the FDA looked at this information and concluded that there was, although modest, an increased incidence, uh, an absolute increased incidence of Gleason 8 to 10 prostate cancer with the finasteride dutasteride groups, less than, less than a, a percent. But it contributed to the FDA not approving these medications for chemo prevention. So, this is sort of why you know, we don't give these medications routinely um, to prevent prostate cancer or, or for patients who have high-grade PIN or ASAP. Um, the similar overall in pro, uh, mortality rate um, was investigated a little bit further in a retrospective study out of the UK, uh, where they were also able to report that there was no difference in incidence of prostate cancer-specific mortality um, for people who took 5-alpha-reductase inhibitors versus um, you know, people uh, who did not. Um, there's some limitations to this because they only track the prescription if it was um, prescribed by a primary care doctor as opposed to a specialist. But I mean, it's reassuring that there, you know, the people who are on these medications for other reasons 
And the principal reason we give 5-alpha-reductase inhibitors is for, you know, BPH-associated um, LUTs that it's, you know, it's probably still safe. So, you know, seeing this, these slides, you should not you know, immediately call up all your patients who are on finasteride and tell them to stop or, or people taking Propecia. Um, but certainly, you know, these medications are not to be used for prostate cancer prevention without, you know, thorough discussion with the patients. Um, the role of these medications for patients who have already been diagnosed with prostate cancer and are on active surveillance has also been explored um, as what we would term um, a tertiary chemo prevention. So primary chemo prevention would be, you know, you haven't been diagnosed with anything yet, you don't want to get it. Um, secondary chemo prevention would be you're diagnosed with high-grade PIN or ASAP and you want to prevent progression of prostate cancer. And tertiary chemo prevention would be you have low-grade prostate cancer and you want to prevent progression um, or at least an upgrading to higher grade disease. So the REDEEM trial was a randomized trial, multi-institutional, 65 centers in North America, um, took about 300 men with low volume, uh, low risk prostate cancer, and randomized them to dutasteride versus placebo. And they did per protocol biopsies at 18 months and 36 months. Uh, men were followed for around three years and they looked at um, rates of progression. Um, of note, they defined progression not only as upgrading to Gleason uh, 4 or higher, but also volume up, um, upstaging, rather, um, having four or more cores positive or more than 50% of one core. So it's sort of a compound definition. Whenever you're looking at clinical, you know, you're, or you're looking at studies, you want to kind of get into the weeds of how they're reporting, because oftentimes we'll do this compound endpoint, um, um, which may not be as clinically meaningful. So they were able to show that uh, the dutasteride arm delayed uh, incidence of progression uh, by about 10%. You see the Kaplan-Meier curve here, where the placebo group um, had a higher incidence of progression than the dutasteride group. Uh, looking into the weeds here about how that progression kind of played out, uh, we see that the majority had to do with the volume progression, meaning um, the dutasteride group um, was found to sort of have less incidence of four or more cores involved. Um, the difference of more than 50% of any one core was kind of the same, and the uh, upgrading to Gleason 4 was about the same as well. So it seems like that difference is more a volume-based progression than actually Gleason upgrading. Uh, they did also report that there was a higher incidence of no cancer on subsequent biopsy for the dutasteride group compared to the placebo group. Um, and they also sort of reassured the reader that um, the incidence of adverse uh, uh, events were, stati were um, statistically similar, although you do see a higher incidence of the side effects that are typically associated with the 5-alpha reductase inhibitors, such as gynecomastia, mastodynia, uh, decreased libido, and ejaculatory disorders. So again, you know, this is sort of food for thought, nothing definitive, and this is basically of historic interest in sort of explaining why we don't see these medications in the AUA and NCCN guidelines. I mean, it has been looked at, but hasn't uh, panned out. So, you know, pharmaceuticals for prevention of prostate cancer, you know, hasn't really led to any kind of substantial change in clinical practice. So where does that leave us? You know, where does that leave the patient who has a BRCA1 uh, mutation who says, doc, you know, what can, you know, am I a ticking time bomb? What can you do to help me? Um, so this is where we get into the role of uh, complementary and alternative medicine. Um, such as Chinese traditional medicine and uh, using the, the Mediterranean diet. So 
complementary and alternative medicine is actually sort of more prevalent than we may think um, and often pursued by patients sort of in secret. And we'll see they don't always uh, tell their doctors about what they're doing. Um, and there can be adverse effects of these medications, you know, which we'll discover. Um, there was a study called the Prostate Cancer Therapy Selection Study, uh, which looked at um, men's decision-making after a diagnosis of localized prostate cancer. Um, and they basically did surveys of, you know, which men were using complementary alternative medicine. And over, it was reported that over 50% of men pursued some kind of complementary and alternative medicine. Um, most of them were sort of mind-body modalities with uh, exercise and um, wellness, meditation, as well as biologically-based treatments, such as vitamins and other minerals and other uh, supplements. Um, you know, to substantiate uh, that finding, uh, there's been several studies done um, out of Canada, the UK, and Sweden. So um, it's been reported that prostate cancer patients are more likely to use complementary and alternative medicine than healthy control subjects in Sweden. Um, about 30 to 39% of Canadian patients uh, who are diagnosed with prostate cancer um, have used complementary alternative medicine. Um, one study from 2003 um, cited saw palmetto, vitamin E, and selenium um, as three of the most common supplements people are using. Uh, the reasons being to boost their immune system and prevent recurrence. Uh, the interesting thing is actually this study was done before the, the uh, report of the SELECT trial, which looked at vitamin E and selenium and actually reported a higher incidence of prostate cancer in the vitamin E group, which was mitigated a little bit by selenium, but the selenium caused an increased uh, risk of diabetes. So it's, you know, it's of note that, you know, that came out before SELECT. Um, also people have used um, um, lycopene, um, and then a study out of the UK showed that 25% uh, of prostate cancer patients were pursuing a low-fat diet, various vitamins and lycopene as well, again, for uh, boosting the immune system and to improve their quality of life. What about patients uh, who are kind of special populations? Um, about 30% of men who have family history of prostate cancer um, have been reported to um, be using various supplements for prostate health or chemo prevention, such as selenium, green tea, and salt palmetto. Um, and this has also been looked at in cancer survivors and vitamin and mineral use has been reported between a quarter and a third of patients. Interestingly, in this study, actually, it showed that prostate cancer patients sort of use the least um, uh, supplements. And you know, the reasons for that may be multifactorial and maybe you know, lack of understanding from the patient standpoint, lack of understanding from the, from the provider, the urologist standpoint, uh, failure to plug the patient into proper survivorship, um, or simply because these, some of these measures are not definitive and, um, you know, the evidence is, um, you know, somewhat, you know, conclusive evidence is somewhat lacking. So um, what do we tell patients, or what do I tell patients in terms of, you know, dietary preventative measures? So this is from a slide that I used at the NBC Health Expo a couple years ago, you know, to make it sort of very vivid, you know, the Mediterranean, the Mediterranean diet, um, certain things that I highlight um, here, we'll kind of go into, you know, the evidence for them sort of in a, you know, kind of um, uh, stepwise way. Um, foods that are good are on the left. These are um, the unsaturated fats um, like olive oil, omega-3 fatty acids that come from fish, lycopene, which is found in cooked tomato products uh, like tomato uh, juice, uh, tomato sauce, also green tea, which is a potent antioxidant. Soy products have um, phytoestrogen compounds, which can essentially serve as negative growth factors for prostate cells and prostate cancer cells. 
Um, you know, I tell men that, you know, it, the, the soy or the phytoestrogen concentrations are not enough to be like feminizing, you know, it's not going to change their behavior or their appearance, um, but you know, can serve as these a negative growth factor. Um, and we'll look at some of the in vitro studies that have been done. Uh, fiber and flax seed um, can be effective because of the lignin uh, phytoestrogen components, also cruciferous vegetables. Um, and foods that have been implicated to be bad are there on the right. So things like red meat and processed meats, um, milk and dairy, especially uh, whole fat dairy products. Um, and we'll get into that a little bit, um, as well as saturated fats from fried foods and desserts. Now, like I said, some of the evidence for these things are uh, equivocal, but at the same time, um, it allows men to be more proactive, probably has general overlap with well-being, health, and especially cardiovascular health. So, you know, the Mediterranean diet has been shown to reduce the incidence of heart attacks and strokes. So you're sort of, you know, killing two birds with one stone, as it were, uh, promoting not only prostate health, but cardiac health and um, helping out your primary care uh, colleagues. Um, the, there is a, a huge encyclopedic biorepository of all of this information and in how, how complementary and alternative medicine has been investigated and intersects with cancer on the National Cancer Institute um, website, um, where it looks at nutrition and dietary supplements. The, the website um, is below. Um, I advise you to look, I mean, it really gets into the weeds of you know, the different um, arenas where these things have been studied. Arenas meaning, are these in vitro studies you know, with cell line cultures um, or cell, uh, cell lines in the Petri dish? Are these animal studies, you know, mouse model studies, or are these human studies? And within human studies, are these, you know, big prospective or even retrospective population-based studies where it's hard to kind of derive definitive conclusions? Or are these interventions, you know, for people who um, may have been diagnosed with prostate cancer or have high-grade PIN or ASAP? Um, so, you know, there's various uh, arenas where this evidence is circulating, and sometimes it doesn't always translate. So, um, We'll talk about you know a couple caveats when we're interpreting all these things. Again, it's hard to find definitive evidence, but at the same time, um, these dietary uh, changes are often beneficial and have a little downside. Um, so, a couple things to keep in mind before we get into the evidence here for each of these uh, these components of the nutritional uh, program that I tell patients about. Um, the majority of these things have have been studied in in vitro and mouse model studies. Um, they may not necessarily translate to clinical significance in humans and are, and are hard to study sort of in a controlled way. Um, in vitro studies often involve uh, cell lines that have been immortalized uh, after having been derived from you know, sentinel patients. So it's almost like the HeLa cells you know, for, for, uh, for breast cancer. Um, there's LN cap cells that have been derived from a lymph node metastasis and are actually androgen sensitive. There's something called VCAP cells which are, have been derived by a vertebral met um, and are immortalized and are androgen insensitive. There's also PC3 cells, which are an androgen insensitive immortalized cell lines. Um, you know, a lot of the, you know, a lot of the residents, you know, don't focus on this, uh, the kind of microbiology aspect of, you know, how prostate cancer studied uh, being so clinical, um, you know, so it's very important to understand um, that, you know, the, you know, mouse model and cell line um, studies of, Therapeutics against prostate cancer, you know, obviously preclinical 
uh, research is very fundamental to getting these drugs pushed through the pathway. Um, and there's, you know, it, it, an enormous amount of research that goes into it that often, you know, the residents, um, you know, sort of don't pay attention to because it's not within our, our scope. Um, so to give some context for how these things are studied. Um, human studies are largely population-based. Uh, they're, you know, big prospective cohorts, um, such as the NHANES database. Um, there's a dietary uh, lifestyle database from the AARP. Um, the methodology of these studies is also a little bit limited. They often rely on patient-reported questionnaires and food frequency questionnaires that often ask about your dietary habits um, over a certain specified period of time. That's usually a pretty long period of time. I mean, sometimes it's 12 months, and so you're asking someone to remember what they ate over the last year uh, or even six months, which is sort of a tall, tall order. Obviously, these are subject to reporting bias. Um, uh, recall bias, you know, patients might not remember, they may report that they eat more healthy than they actually do because they want to sort of look like they're on top of things. Um, also, there may be a bias introduced by people who don't respond to the survey. Um, and the other thing is that the conclusions of these studies um, are limited in what they can show us. So they can demonstrate associations, but it's difficult to prove causality. So that's, you know, something that I tell my patients um, as well. It's difficult to fully control for confounders. There are statistical ways to do that um, in you know, multivariable uh, regression, um, but oftentimes patients who um, maybe have poor dietary or, or, or less, uh, um, less healthy, I should say, dietary choices um, may also have other uh, risk factors that put them at risk for cancer, such as like smoking use, um, uh, higher BMI, less physical activity, lower socioeconomic status, um, you know, and those things have been borne out in studies as well. So there are other confounders that it's difficult to completely control for. The other thing is that complementary alternative medicine formulations or doses or preparations are not standardized. So, uh, you know, different companies have different amounts. Um, you know, the amount that's um, beneficial varies depending on the study. And also these things are not regulated by the FDA. Uh, certainly if they're contaminated, you know, they can be you know, recalled, but, um, it's hard to sort of police what's going on. Okay, so you know, with that as a disclaimer, you know, where, where does uh, all this come from about um, you know, the influence of, of diet or nutrition on incidence of prostate cancer? So a lot of the evidence uh, comes from um, you know, basically like migration studies with people coming from um, other geographic locations to the US and being sort of exposed to the Western diet and how that changes their risk for cancer. Um, certainly, um, African-American men have a higher incidence of prostate cancer, which is not necessarily the same as African men. And this has also been looked at with um, Asian populations that come to the U.S. where the incidence of cancer in uh, Asian-Americans is higher, or prostate cancer specifically, is higher than, you know, in um, China, Japan, you know, over in Asia. Um, so looking specifically, there's been a couple studies that have looked at this. Uh, there was a case control study in Australia where it looked at a Western diet um, and showed a higher risk of uh, prostate cancer development with uh, red or processed meats, fried fish, uh, chips, and high-fat milk, and white bread, sort of all the things that you know, are indulgent here in the US. Um, and also, it's been looked at in China, in urban centers with the Westernization of the diet over time, the urban incidence of prostate cancer has actually increased uh, substantially and has more than doubled. So, Again, you know, this is not a smoking gun causative factor, but it is an interesting association and definitely has prompted further investigation into this area. 
Um, so looking at um, you know red meat as a potentially negative um, impact on prostate cancer, um, there's been several case control and cohort studies that have suggested an association, but again, this may be tenuous. In fact, the World Cancer Research Fund and the American Institute for Cancer Research in 2014 um, reported that epidemiologic and mechanistic data for red and processed meats and prostate cancer are limited and insufficient to make a conclusion in relation to prostate cancer risk. However, there are several mechanisms um, that um, you know, underlie why there might be this association. Um, high temperature cooking and grilling releases heterocyclic amines and polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, which are known animal carcinogens. Also, N-nitroso compounds or NOCs are formed endogenously from the cooking of red meat or from the preservatives added to meats like nitrates and nitrites. Um, heme iron also can produce uh, endogenous NOC compounds, and any iron source can catalyze the formation of free radicals that can damage DNA. And then when the DNA goes to repair itself, you have the, the potential for introducing um, you know, mutations with mismatch um, uh, between the nucleotides that can propagate um, oncogenesis and tumorigenesis later on. So um, looking at uh, one particular study about the impact of red meat, um, you know, which they defined as pork or beef, white meat being turkey or chicken, um, came from the uh, uh, National, Health, uh, National Institute for Health um, AARP Diet and Health Study that looked at 175,000 men and their um, measures were meat consumption, heme iron, and nitrate, nitrite uh, composition. Um, they looked at the type of meat consumed, also the cooking method, such as barbecuing or grilling, and they estimated mutagenic activity, which is sort of neat. You know, there's uh, this thing called the National Cancer Institute CHARD database, which basically looks at sort of the mutagenic potential of various compounds, and they just multiplied the weight of the food that people reported eating, like in grams, by this like mutation factor, essentially, um, to give a, an estimate of mutagenic activity, which uh, is sort of interesting. Uh, they followed men for nine years, and then they basically were comparing the highest to lowest quintile of uh, red and processed meat intake. Um, some of these uh, dietary-based studies have very uh, limited variance between the highest and lowest um, uh, kind of groups that they're measuring. Here, that wasn't the case, so it seemed you know, it was valid um, that the highest quintile um, had much more substantial meat intake than the lowest. So they found that uh, about 6% of men developed prostate cancer, um, and then 11% uh, of those men had advanced prostate cancer, either locally advanced node metastatic or, or, or node, uh, regional node met positive or metastatic. Um, and then you see the breakdown there of the hazard ratios um, for developing prostate cancer. Uh, red meat contributed processed meats and also higher heme iron con content and barbecue or grilled meat. Um, advanced prostate cancer was also influenced by these things, as well as nitrite and nitrate composition. Um, there was no association with fatal prostate cancer, however. Um, and again, th this study actually kind of substantiated some of these confounding factors. Although they controlled for them in their analysis, they did find that increased red meat intake was associated with um, uh, being less educated, being a current smoker, having a higher BMI and being less physically active. So again, in these type of studies, it's hard to dissociate those other potential confounding factors, but you know, it is kind of thought provoking. Um, there has been a, a subsequent systematic review and meta-analysis in 2015 that looked at 19 different cohort studies 
um, and uh, again investigated red and processed meats, heme iron in this heterocyclic ambient exposure. They did meta-regression um, to try to identify a dose-response relationship, and their outcomes were, again, prostate cancer, advanced prostate cancer, and fatal prostate cancer. Uh, they looked at sum summary relative risk estimates, or SSRE, um, which they found to be significant only for the processed meat um, uh, exposure. There was no dose response seen in their meta-regression, um, and the study said that there may be you know, publication bias with the studies. Um, so you see the, the forest plot below on the, uh, on the right that shows the, uh, the cumulative effect of the, the processed meats. Um, whereas the, the red meat group on the left um, didn't show any uh, consistent association. So getting into you know, some of the, the you know, phytonutrients and therapeutics. Um, so traditional Chinese medicine has been explored and has been around for you know, eons. Um, there was of historic interest, uh, a compound called PC spes, which was made up of eight different um, herbs. You see you know, some that are familiar, ginseng, licorice, salt palmetto, chrysanthemum, um, also some mushrooms. Um, and there were multiple in vitro uh, studies done showing that the, this collection of compounds had an impact on um, uh, cell line uh, growth and also androgen insensitive cell line growth. Uh, this was actually developed um, as a shout out to New York uh, back, um, I think in the 1990s uh, by a traditional Chinese um, medicine doctor in China, you know, who had special um, proficiency in herbal medicine in combination or in collaboration with uh, a chemist at uh, New York Medical College in Valhalla. You know, so they developed this compound. Again, was shown to be effective in cell lines. Uh, some human studies show that it decreased PSA levels and also testosterone levels. Um, however, many of these men who were taking this and actually speaking to you know, some of the more senior members of my practice, they remember a lot of patients were on this. And then um, they unfortunately started developing DBTs and so it prompted investigation into you know, what was actually in this compound you know, that was proprietary. Um, and they found that there was actually contamination with an oral form of estrogen called diethylsilvestrol, um, as well as uh, Coumadin and Xanax. So it was voluntary recalled in 2002, you know, so it hasn't been around for, um, for 20 years. Um, and it's not currently legally available in the US. There are some replacements, but um, you know, nothing purported to be the original um, composition. So, you know, it's interesting that, you know, each of these compounds sort of uh, in isolation has been looked at um, and that initially it showed promise, but whether it was because of these um, medicinal herbs or because of the, you know, the DES um, contamination, it's not known and it hasn't really been uh, subsequently studied. So getting back into the, the, the prostate cancer diet that I tell my patients about, We'll look a little bit at the evidence and kind of go through, you know, in a linear way through each of these things and say, okay, what's the evidence for, for each of these things, um, you know, with the caveats that I mentioned kept in mind. So um, in terms of fish, you know, the omega-3 fatty acids um, have been shown to be beneficial for cardiovascular health. There's been uh, several um, studies, uh, one meta-analysis of 12 case control and cohort studies showed that men who had high fish intake had 63% less death from prostate cancer. The Harvard Health Professional Study uh, looked at um, eating fish more than three times a week, reduce your risk of prostate cancer, metastatic prostate cancer. Um, however, there was a Swedish study that showed after following men for 30 years, um, uh, oh, I'm sorry, this would show that also no fish consumption um, 
was associated with a two to three higher time of prostate cancer risk. So, um, you know, food for thought there. Um, green tea um, is a catechin. It's a potent antioxidant. It's been shown to suppress antigen receptor signaling. It may inhibit cell proliferation. Um, it actually acts systemically. Enlisted there is um, you know, the, the caffeine comp uh, content per cup. One thing I'll tell patients who are motivated uh, to take this is to buy decaffeinated green tea pills as a supplement, as opposed to having to drink the green tea, which can be caffeinated. And certainly, you know, as we know, you know, many men are suffering from BPH or have lower urinary tract symptoms. So we want to minimize caffeine intake. So some of the decaffeinated pills is one way to get around that. Um, multiple uh, studies have been done in, in vitro and also mouse model studies. Um, interestingly, some of the murine studies that have been done, um, there's this type of mouse that's been genetically engineered called the tramp uh, mouse um, that develops prostate cancer. Um, and mice treated for 24 weeks um, with green tea extract had about a 40% risk reduction in prostate tumor development um, after uh, about eight months. Um, so these, these mice that were genetically engineered to develop prostate cancer when treated with green tea actually developed less prostate cancer. And there was also 70% less metastatic spread. This has been looked at in humans uh, for, for men with high-grade PIN. Um, a couple of randomized trials out of Italy, um, one published in 2006 showed giving uh, green tea extract 600 milligrams per day, uh, reduced the incidence of prostate cancer from 53% um, to 11% in men who had been diagnosed with high-grade PIN. Although there were some limitations in this study, um, although there were 60 men initially, only 20 patients were included at the two-year follow-up. So you know, the conclusions are not as, as robust. And in fact, um, a subsequent study um, done in 2015 on men with high-grade pain in a similar dose of green tea didn't show any uh, risk reduction um, in incidence of prostate cancer um, after a year of follow-up. So it's controversial. You know, we don't uh, know the methodology as well, whether this was multifocal pin, whether it was unifocal pin, um, you know, so that may have an impact as well, you know, the volume of these atypical cells. Um, so it's still sort of equivocal, but probably has a low side effect profile. Uh, pomegranate juice has also been looked at given its very potent antioxidant properties. It's anti-proliferative, um, also has been shown to increase apoptosis. Um, there's been a few uh, human trials um, in the arena of reducing PSA doubling time uh, for men who have recurred after being treated for prostate cancer. Um, so, you know, this is especially kind of fertile ground. It's known that PSA doubling time at the time of recurrence impacts uh, prostate cancer mortality and also influences our decision to treat these patients. You may imagine that if patients are recurring after having been treated, they may be elderly, you know, they may be in their 70s, um, you know, they have competing risks of mortality. So we don't, we don't necessarily automatically treat all men who have a rising PSA after having been treated. Um, if the PSA doubling time is long, then we may watch. You know, most of that data comes out of what we call the pound data out of Johns Hopkins, where they were um, checking patients' PSAs after having had surgery, but weren't reacting to them. They were just basically tracking the PSA and they would only intervene with systemic androgen deprivation therapy at the time of metastasis. And that's where we get the sort of average or mean time natural history of prostate cancer survival for those who have recurrence after surgery. It was about eight years and then after initiation of hormone therapy at the time of metastasis, patients lived for another about five years. Um, that was influenced by when the recurrence happened, the original Gleason score, 
and most importantly, the PSA doubling time. So, you know, for the residents, the point here is, you know, the, the recurrent prostate cancer, uh, you want it, you know, you get a sense of PSA doubling time to see what the potential mortality is um, and, you know, can use that information to guide treatment. So can we prolong that PSA doubling time? Is there a way to use, you know, phytochemicals and, and nutrition um, to do that? This has been looked at with pomegranate juice. Uh, there was a phase two study, obviously with no control group, but a phase two study for patients looking at their doubling time, intervening with um, eight ounces of pomegranate juice a day, and then uh, looking at PSA doubling time afterward. And it showed that the PSA doubling time um, increased. So this prompted a phase three trial which wasn't quite as favorable, uh, looking at 180 men uh, where they had three groups, pomegranate liquid extract versus juice versus placebo for 12 months. Um, the PSA at the time of entry was 1.2, so you know, relatively low. They followed them up for about a year and a half. Um, they did find that the PSA doubling time um, actually increased for both the placebo and the juice groups. Um, and this prompted further investigation into um, a certain polymorphism that exists um, that impacts um, sort of response to antioxidant therapy. So it's been found that people who have a certain genotype uh, mutation like the alanine residue in um, this enzyme manganese superoxide dismutase um, are um, more prone to oxidative stress because of the way that this uh, sort of isoform of the enzyme um, produces hydrogen peroxide that can lead to more free radical damage. So there's actually, you know, very interesting and also in the vein of like personalized and precision medicine, they found that people who had this mutation were more sensitive to the pomegranate extract, sort of were more likely to benefit from the antioxidant properties of the pomegranate. So you see here that the, um, you know, the placebo patients um, didn't, uh, you know, didn't really have a change, um, you know, the placebo uh, mutation carrier patients didn't really have a change in their doubling time, but those who did have the mutation were sensitive to the extract and also the, uh, the pomegranate juice. Um, so, you know, we, we don't routinely test for this mutation, um, but because of the potential benefit, um, you know, in the low side effect profile, again, you know, this can be recommended for patients, you know, uh, to prolong their PSA doubling time. Again, in the vein of uh, patients potentially having uh, lower urinary tract symptoms, especially if they've had radiation and are now recurring, um, pomegranate juice is very tart. Um, so, um, you know, can exacerbate urinary symptoms. So you just want to make sure patients are watching out for this. Um, you know, flaxseed has been looked at. Um, it has been shown to lower blood pressure and cholesterol. Uh, it contains phytoestrogens um, that uh, serve as negative growth factors for prostate cancer. Uh, there was ran one randomized study with men um, uh, who were under suspicion for having prostate cancer because of an elevated PSA um, and were given uh, flaxseed and it showed that on their biopsy, they actually had lower uh, KI proliferation rates in the cells. Um, there's also been animal studies that have shown in, uh, inhibition on prostate cancer growth. Usually I tell patients that they can add the flaxseed uh, to like their, um, their cereal in the morning or Greek yogurt. Yogurt obviously is dairy, but as we'll see, the fermented dairy products, uh, I think, have less um, uh, negative association with cancer. Uh, probably because of their promotion of good intestinal microbiota that is increasingly being understood to be linked um, to um, uh, positive effects against cancer development. Um, so dairy compounds, they do contain bioactive compounds. 
uh, such as insulin-like growth factor, which has been linked to prostate cancer development. Uh, the high saturated fat content of certain dairy has been shown to increase testosterone levels, which is you know, a known um, growth factor for prostate and prostate cancer. Um, uh, the, again, the World Cancer Research Fund has looked into this, um, as well as the American Institute for Cancer Research, and they said that there was an association in 15 to 21 studies uh, investigated that showed an association um, between uh, dairy intake and uh, prostate cancer. Um, some of these studies that were included included the NHANES trial and the um, AARP study that we mentioned before. So these were kind of big population-based studies. Um, the, the role of insulin-like growth factor um, has been looked at um, in various meta-analyses. Um, one from 2008 showed about a 40% increased risk of prostate cancer for men who had the highest uh, quintile of insulin-like growth factor. Um, and then another meta-analysis showed a similar association um, looking at 172 studies um, and showed an association between insulin-like growth factor and inc increased prostate cancer risk. Uh, looking further at the role of dairy, um, the prostate, lung, colorectal, and ovarian cancer study, the PS PLCL study, uh, which was admittedly subject to a lot of contamination, um, also looked at the association of dairy intake and prostate cancer. This study uh, that I found um, had a, a very good follow-up of about um, 11 years and um, looked into the weeds of the type of dairy that was that was consumed and how, what its association was. So. Um, they stratified it by fat content, also, um, you know, whether it was fermented or not, like, you know, yogurt, um, the frequency, the portion size, and how it was consumed. Um, they found that there was no association except for regular fat dairy uh, for advanced prostate cancer was about a 37% increased risk. So again, you know, maybe somewhat equivocal, but there is mechanistic explanation for this as well. Um, looking at, you know, the role of fat, um, I tell patients that, you know, there's good fats, there's bad fats. Um, unsaturated fats are the, the good fats. So those are those that you get from olive oil, nuts, avocados, or vegetables. Um, also, uh, polyunsaturated fat comes from fish with the omega-3 fatty acids, uh, flaxseed, and walnuts. Saturated fat is found in meat, and also uh, trans fats are found in baked goods and fried foods. So those are to be avoided. Um, there was an interesting intervention uh, that came out of UCLA a little while ago, um, where they took uh, men. Uh, drew their blood at baseline, and then had them engage in a uh, dietary exercise intervention uh, where they gave them a low-fat diet, high fiber, and encouraged them to exercise, and then, um, and then redrew their blood. Uh, they spun down the serum and basically exposed LN-cap cell line, prostate cancer cell lines to the serum, and they looked at sort of what happened. Um, so, you know, this is when uh, the serum was exp uh, given to the LN-cap cells, and it showed that the the, the cancer cells grew. After the, dot, the uh, intervention, they gave it and the cancer cells didn't grow as much. Here, when they gave insulin like growth factor one, which is a known growth factor for prostate cancer, despite the dietary and exercise intervention, um, the cells still grew. So this is basically corroborating the, you know, the role of the insulin like growth factor. Um, moving on to lycopene. So lycopene is found um, in tomato products. Um, it gives uh, certain foods its red pigment, um, and is although the evidence is limited, um, there is you know mechanistic explanation for why this might be effective. It does inhibit insulin-like growth factor one. Um, has been uh, shown to suppress VEGF as well, um, and it's been studied for many indications such as prevention, pre-prostatectomy for men on active surveillance. 
Um, these are small studies, however, and the results are inconsistent, um, but they are, there are a few toxicities uh, and the FDA basically says that they're generally regarded as safe. The World Cancer Research Fund said in 2007 that lycopene-containing foods probably protect against prostate cancer, although in 2014 they changed their tune and said that there's really no conclusion possible because of the limited evidence. Um, uh, so some studies have looked at this in men with high-grade PIN. Um, one in 2005 said that there was a, a PSA decline in these men, um, less prostate cancer diagnosed. Another study showed that there was basically no uh, impact. And then uh, a meta-analysis uh, in 2015 looked at dietary lycopene, lycopene, the circulating concentration of it, and also looked for a dose-response association. And they were able to find um, that there was a linear association between higher consumption of lycopene um, and lower incidence of prostate cancer. Uh, so soy products, as I mentioned, have phytoestrogens in them. The structure is similar to estradiol, and they combine to the estrogen receptors. Um, also can be used for reduction of uh, cholesterol. Um, there's mixed evidence for use with uh, you know, pre-prostatectomy, such as during active surveillance or for biochemical recurrence, but it has been shown to mitigate side effects, uh, such as urinary GI and sexual side effects as a result of radiation, um, and can reduce hot flashes for men on uh, ADT. Uh, the dose usually associated with this is 40 grams of isolated soy protein. However, to be aware, um, high oxalate um, is a problem with soy products. So patients who have uh, a predisposition to kidney stones, um, you have to, have to be careful. So I'm sort of getting toward the end here so I can kind of rush through. One thing I'll mention is, you know, we're trying to use these things for chemo prevention, but we don't want to, you know, create chemo promotion where some of these, you know, dietary supplements um, can actually cause a worsening of the disease state. Many patients will take vitamins and actually not report them to their provider because they're general, they're thought to be just you know uh, benign that or innocent that they don't cause anything or any problems because they, you can get them over the counter. Um, one thing to uh, to report here is that initially there was something called the alpha tocopherol beta carotene study looking at male smokers um, with uh, vitamin E and beta carotene to see what the impact on diagnosis of, of lung cancer risk was. Um, and they found that there was actually a lower incidence of prostate cancer in the vitamin E arm. This then prompted SELECT trial, where they actually gave a five-time higher dose of vitamin E than in the ATBC study. And actually, they found that there was a higher incidence of prostate cancer by 17% that was mitigated by selenium, uh, meaning when they gave us the selenium as well, there wasn't the higher incidence. But so um, there also has been reports of adverse impact of zinc. Um, and also adverse impact of vitamin D. And there was another study that looked at giving folic acid to try to prevent colorectal adenomas. And there was about a three time higher incidence in this population of prostate cancer. Um, the, the relationship of folic acid with the cancer was thought to be relatively uh, multifactorial or complex, but you know, these are not benign things. Um, they should, should definitely be discussed with the patients. So, you know, there's, these are all not benign. Um, green tea has vitamin K, which can obviously impact on Coumadin. As I mentioned, soy has a fair amount of oxalate that can impact kidney stones. Um, Fox Chase Cancer Center actually reported that about 50% of patients will initiate complementary and alternative medicine without discussing it. And that PCAT study that we mentioned before showed that about 43% of patients um, discussed uh, CAM use with their provider, so the majority do not. Um, some of the popularly available supplements like super beta prostate, prostagenics, they contain phytoestrogens, 
these are mostly used for like BPH and, and urinary symptoms, uh, not necessarily for, um, for prostate cancer. And uh, I'll finish up here with just pointing out, so you know, if, if you type in prostate cancer diet to clinicaltrials.gov, um, you get 55 studies looking at this. So you know, it's, it's, although the evidence is limited, it's very thought, you know, currently, it's very thought provoking. And I think, like I said, offers a way for patients to be proactive about um, you know, taking a role in their prevention or those on active surveillance, per, perhaps mitigating the risk of progression. Um, you know, a couple notable studies uh, at the University of Maryland is use of a ketogenic diet for active surveillance. Um, also at UCLA, they're using a carbohydrate restricted diet for active surveillance. Um, and then UCLA is also using a low fat um, diet along with fish oil to help prevent progression on active surveillance. So it's a very fertile ground for studies. And I think, you know, there's more important things to come. So, um, you know, in conclusion here, so risk adapted screening reduces prostate cancer mortality. Genetic testing is important even among localized prostate cancer patients, such as those with high-risk disease. As we discussed, chemo prevention is not FDA approved. Uh, traditional Chinese medicine and the Mediterranean diet have shown promise for a holistic approach to prostate cancer prevention and treatment, but there's much more work to be done and is being done. Um, so sort of what I tell patients is to minimize red and processed meats, fatty foods and dairy, and to um, try to incorporate some of the supplements like lycopene, green tea, soy, uh, and flax. So, some of the future directions might you know, look at uh, the use of these dietary uh, interventions for patients with inherited DNA damage repair or um, mismatch repair mutations, or looking at um, you know dietary intervention. Um, you know we looked at for PSA doubling time you know, for the pomegranate use, but it would be interesting to see if patients who had you know you do a prostatectomy they have T3A or T3B disease or node positivity. Um, to put them on you know, a dietary intervention and see if this postpones or prevents um, you know, biochemical recurrence given that this, risk, this population is at such high risk. Um, Thanks, Mike, great. that was, that was outstanding. Um, we're, we're, we're at the nine o'clock hour now, but uh, just two questions for you. The first came from Justin Gregg from MD Anderson. He says, great talk, um, wants to know what your thoughts are on the meal study and difficulties in showing diet-related benefits in low-risk prostate cancer. You know, I'm not familiar with that. Um, so, I'll, yeah, I'll have to look into it. I mean, um, you know, it's interesting, you know, it's a sort of a heterogeneous population as well. I mean, in, it would be interesting to see um, whether... Yeah, I mean, the different, you know, basically right. prevention for people who haven't been diagnosed versus high-grade PIN or ASAP. Um, yeah. So I'll have to look into that. Another question, is there a handout or standard dietary recommendations that you give your all of your patients who are interested in CAM um, and have a diagnosis of prostate cancer? Uh, yeah, there is. You know, it's basically compiled um, from, you know, some of this evidence that I presented in the talk as well as um, use of one of the AUA updates, I think that came out in 2015 or so. Um, so I kind of repurposed that into a handout. It basically focuses on those things that I mentioned with the you know, reduction of, of processed meats and red meat, incorporation of fish and chicken as opposed to red meat, uh, getting protein from nuts um, and um, you know, like fish as opposed to red meat, uh, trying right. to cut out butter and dairy and using more olive oil. The Mediterranean diet. Um, the Mediterranean you mentioned. diet. Yep. How how would you advise someone taking male enhancing supplements or even testosterone supplements while also taking saw palmetto? 
you know, it's interesting. I mean, if it's like an over-the-counter supplement, um, I'm not sure about the efficacy of those things. But I mean, if someone's on testosterone for hypogonadism, there's certainly that's one of the, you know, it's, it's a growth factor, you know, so it can promote BPH and, and uh, BPH-related symptoms. Um, you know, okay. the question is, you know, is the testosterone acting systemically and creating more like vitality and vigor and, you know, maybe increasing libido um, and the salt palmetto sort of mitigating some of the, the growth factor effects on the, on the BPH? I don't know that this is studied and, and I actually don't know the answer to that. Um, but it's, okay. you know, a possible way, I guess, to get the systematic uh, or the systemic effects of the testosterone would possibly blocking, you know, the effects on the prostate. Um, but like I said, I don't know if that's been studied. Yeah. 